Good evening, folks. Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday night, August 5th, and I'm coming to you, as always, from my home here in Boulder, Colorado. It's a beautiful night in Boulder. Uh, the days are getting a little shorter, which actually feels kind of good. I'm here with Brett Walker, my assistant, who's managing the call behind the scenes, and we're very happy to be here with you. As always, I want to start with a shout out to Integral Life, IntegralLife.com, which is the main integral web portal internationally for all cutting edge integral thinking. Uh, they're the home of the Ken Wilber archives and are always coming up with new things, interviewing cool people and featuring integral art and music and commentary. And it's a great place to be. And I'm happy to be part of IntegralLife.com. Uh, this podcast is also available on my blog, DailyEvolver.com, and Stitcher and iTunes podcasts as well. For those of you who are maybe a little bit new to integral theory, or just want a little bit of a crutch, if you will, make it a little easier, you can check out a couple graphs that we've created uh, on the altitudes of development and the quadrants of reality. <laughs> These are two important dimensions of integral theory. And you can access these by going to the reminder email that reminded you of this call. And about two-thirds of the way down in that email, there's a link that will link you to these um, charts. And that might help you understand a little bit of what we're talking about. But either way, just relax and listen. And, you know, I try to make this as understandable as possible because... You know, first of all, it's not that complicated in a certain way. I mean, one of the main theses of integral thinking is that human beings and, in fact, the cosmos as a whole is evolving. That's certainly not controversial when we think about uh, the movement from the Big Bang to now and movement from atoms to molecules to cells to organisms. But what integral adds to the party is that Evolution is also happening in terms of our individual interiors, that is, my individual Jeffness, if you will. Uh, my consciousness is evolving. And also that human organizations or culture is evolving in the interiors. And these are important dimensions of integral theory that we'll flesh out as we go along. I'd like to start with just a quick update on a story that I talked about a few weeks ago that um, got a lot of attention and I, I got some feedback and, and email and, and it was about my fish that I had have in my backyard. And I had this one fish that was the lone survivor of an attack by these herons that got all of the other fish. And he was very timid and hiding behind a rock and never coming out. And I didn't think too much of it. Uh, until I read this article uh, a few weeks ago by this Cullen Brown, who is this fish researcher out of Australia, who talked about how fish are very social and they feel pain and they have uh, social hierarchies and they even use tools. I mean, they're, they're very actually cognitively at the same level as mammals. And so I, I suddenly felt bad for my fish. I went and got some new fish. He immediately 
popped out from under his rock when the new fish were introduced to the pond. And they are the happiest six fish in all of West Central Boulder right now, I'm happy to report. And um, so uh, my fish are doing fine, except for my fish in my refrigerator and freezer. And this is where, you know, it's, gosh, this, you know, develop, moral development is, is challenging. And I, I noticed today, actually today and yesterday, two of my favorite columnists, Andrew Sullivan uh, with The Daily Dish and Ezra Klein with Vox, V-O-X, both of them online, wrote articles about uh, the interiors of fish and particularly in terms of how fish are harvested from the oceans and so forth. And, and they interviewed this Colin Brown, this guy that I talked about a few weeks ago. And he was talking about how the commercial fishing situation is really difficult because there's no way to do it in a way that is humane if you actually take into account th th these facts about fish, that they feel and they are social and they love their lives and all of the stuff that we now know about them. And here's what he wrote. He writes, Every major commercial agricultural system has some ethical laws. So he's talking about pork and chickens and so forth. Every agricultural system has some ethical laws, except for fish. Nobody's ever asked the question, what does a fish want? What does a fish need? I think ultimately, he writes, the revolution will come, but it'll be slow because the implications are huge. For example, I can't think of a way to possibly catch a fish from the open ocean in a massive commercial way to meet demand that would be anywhere near our standards for ethics if we think of them as other animals. Currently, you go out, you catch a bunch of fish, you crush most of them to death in the net as you trawl them up from the bottom of the sea, and if the crushing doesn't work, then the biotrauma, which is the uncontrolled decompression of their internal organs, in other words, their internal organs explode from the change in pressure, then they get dumped on a deck, they half suffocate to death, the ones you don't want get thrown overboard and die anyway, and the ones you keep go on ice just to preserve the flesh for market reasons. How do you do that in a way that has the fish's interests involved to any degree? You can't. So it's not surprising that there is some fierce opposition to this idea in the commercial realm. It would mean a, a massive change in the way we do things. And uh, unfortunately, it would also be a massive change in my delusion up to now that if I'm eating fish, I'm contributing less to the suffering of our animals, uh, brothers and sisters. And so, welcome to my latest depression about this. I just have to figure out a way uh, to um, end my addiction to meat and move into a vegetarian life. And I'm not doing... I'm certainly not doing perfect at it, although I am doing better. And I think back of good old Grant Hill, who talked about be a weekday vegetarian, eat meat on weekends, just do anything, have a meat-free meal, 
so forth that um, is progress, and I guess it is, and that the perfect is the enemy of the good. So that's one of my struggles, and um, perhaps you share it. Uh, by the way, if you are um, interested in uh, comments or have any questions, actually about anything, integral theory or anything I've talked about, it, we talk about current events week after week after week here, of course, the war is going on in the Ukraine and Israel and so forth. If you have any questions about any of this or any comments you'd like to make about anything I've written or anything, that, you know, you're just sort of noodling around with in terms of what we talk about here, uh, we will have time at the end of this call. So just press one and Brett will check you out and, and we'll get you on here if, um, if we have time. All right. So I want to move into uh, my main focus tonight, which is a story that is getting a lot of attention these days. In fact, two of my favorite columnists wrote columns on this in the last week, one of them today, and that's David Brooks. Uh, he's a columnist for the New York Times, and I recommend him as a certainly proto-integral columnist, where he you know, comes from a conservative bent, He's the new conservative columnist for the New York Times after William Sapphire uh, retired. Uh, but he is, um, has a lot of capacity to think uh, just outside of the box when it comes to you know, typical doctrinaire conservative thinking. And he wrote a column today that was inspired by the big summit that's happening in Washington where Obama has called, I think, the leaders of 30 African nations. And they're talking about Africa as a rising power, certainly as a rising economy. Six of the fastest growing economies are in Africa. And this idea that we have of Africa being hopeless and and uh, war-ridden and so forth is that's happening in some areas of sub-Saharan Africa, but actually most of Africa is on a fast developmental track. And when you're moving from a economy that is uh, agrarian to an economy that is modern and proto-modern, uh, development can happen quite fast. And that's one of the stories that's happening here. And David Brooks opens his column this morning with a profile of uh, a man from Kenya called James Wangi. And James Wangi, well, I'll just read a little bit from what Brooks writes. He was raised poor. He was an orphan. He was raised in the late 80s in, a, um, in one of the hamlets of, of Kenya, out in, the, in one of the um, rural hamlets. As David Brooks writes, he, uh, Wangi, quote, made it to the University of Nairobi and became an accountant. The big Western banks were getting out of retail banking at this time, figuring there was no money to be made catering to the poor. But in 1993, Wangi helped lead a small mutual aid organization called Equity Building Society into the vacuum. And this Equity Bank, which is what it became, gave poor Kenyans access to bank accounts. Wangi catered to street vendors and small-scale farmers. At the time, his firm had 27 employees and was losing $58,000 a year. At this point, Wangi told the staff to emphasize customers' care. He switched the firm's emphasis for mortgage loans to small targeted loans. 
And then through the 90s and through the beginning of the 21st century here, Kenyans got richer, the middle class boomed, and equity banks surged. By 2011, equity had 450 branches and a customer base of 8 million, nearly half of all bank accounts in the country. From 2000 to 2012, equity's pre-tax profit grew at an annual rate of 65%. In 2012, Wangi was named the Ernst & Young World Entrepreneur of the Year. So this is a real rags-to-riches story. And David Brooks is talking about how this is an example that, you know, typically is, is, is held forth, particularly by the West, for Africans and African nations as a way forward. But as he puts it, and this is really the theme of what I want to talk about, this theory of this Horatio Alger, this raising yourself up from your bootstraps, this sort of um, basically American success story, is under threat. Over the past few months, we've seen the beginning of a global battle of regimes and an intellectual contest between centralized authoritarian capitalism and decentralized liberal democratic capitalism. And this James Wangi represents this liberal democratic capitalism and the challenge is coming from a new form of authoritarian capitalism that was exemplified. Well, it's exemplified, first of all, by certainly China and also more and more Russia. But it was articulated two weeks ago by the prime minister of Hungary in a very dramatic way. The prime minister of Hungary is a man named Viktor Orban. And we had the integral conference, of course, in Hungary in May. And he was a topic of conversation because he's a, you know, Hungary was actually one of the first countries after the fall of the Soviet Union to slough off communism, to move into capitalism. And he's actually moving it in another direction now to a state capitalism that, um, well, I'll just read what he said in his uh, July 26th address where he was inaugurated for another four years. Well, let's see what he says. He argues that liberal capitalism's day is done. As he says, the 2008 financial crisis, this is the crisis of the West, revealed that decentralized liberal democracy leads to inequality, oligarchy, corruption, and moral decline. When individuals are given maximum freedom, the strong end up stepping on the weak, is what he said. He says the future belongs to illiberal regimes like China and Singapore. Autocratic systems that put the interests of the community ahead of individual freedom and regimes that are organized for broad growth, not inequality. So this new competing system is really composed of two things. One is a state-controlled economy, and second is a social conservatism. So they're conservative in terms of like abortion, gay rights, this sort of thing. 
he talked about, again, this Victor Orban talked about in his uh, address, the tolerance that the EU, the European Union, has seen fit to promote. He talks about abortion rights and protection for sexual minorities and that they may be fine for other nations, but they're not right for Hungary and that it's time to respect Christianity. It's time for the rise of the illiberal state. And he used that terminology. So that triggered one of my other favorite columnists, Fareed Zakaria, who is, again, a, a, I think a proto-integral columnist. He's at CNN. He's at the Washington Post. And he's the columnist I'm most likely to read and say, wow, okay, I get it. He really helps me understand things quite a bit. And here's what he said about Viktor Orban's address in Hungary. He says, in a major speech last weekend, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban explained that his country is determined to build a new political model, illiberal democracy. This caught my eye because in 1997, I wrote an essay in Foreign Affairs using that same phrase to describe a dangerous trend that I saw in the world. Democratic governments, often popular, were using their mandates to erode individual rights, the separation of powers and the rule of law. But even I never imagined that a national leader, from Europe no less, would use the term as a badge of honor. And this is uh, quoting Viktor Orban again. Orban said, The most popular topic in thinking today is trying to understand how systems that are not Western, not liberal, not liberal democracies, and perhaps not even democracies, can nevertheless make their nation successful. Orban said, The world changed fundamentally in 2008 with the great Western financial collapse. Since then, American power has been in decline. Liberal values today embody corruption, sex, and violence. And this is uh, a pattern that we're seeing. We're seeing this in Turkey with Erdogan. We're seeing this in Russia with Putin. One of the crucial elements of Putinism is this Religious, social conservatism, nationalism, state capitalism, domination of the media, uh, a certain hostility to the values of Western individual rights, cosmopolitanism, internationalism, tolerance. As Fareed Zakaria writes, when Putin came to power in 2000, he seemed to be a tough, smart competent manager, someone who was determined to bring stability to Russia, which was reeling from internal chaos, economic stagnation, and a default in 1998. He sought to integrate Russia into the world and wanted good relations with the West, asking Washington for Russian membership in the World Trade Organization and even NATO. His administration had technocrats who were Western liberals well-versed in free markets and open trade. And this is, again, Fareed Zakaria writing. Over time, however, Putin established order in the country while presiding over a booming economy 
as oil prices quadrupled under his watch. He began creating a repressive system of political, economic, and social control to maintain his power. As he faced opposition, particularly in the parliamentary elections of 2011, Putin recognized that he needed more than just brute force to defeat his opponents. He needed an ideology of power and began articulating one in speeches, enacting legislation, and using his office to convey adherence to a set of values. So again, this state-run capitalism combined with the social conservatism, the nationalism, uh, religiosity, uh, creates this new form of government that we're seeing arise, again, in Russia, Turkey, in Hungary, uh, also in China in different ways. I'll get to China in a second. But what I would say is that uh, it's one of the things that I've always sort of been amazed by, actually. And, and, and this is uh, statistics that come from Don Beck, Spiral Dynamics, Ken Wilbur signs on to this. And that's the idea that 70% of the world population is pre-modern in terms of their interiors, in terms of how they actually think. Now, they may be able to use modern technology and drive cars and use the Internet and so forth. But in terms of their interiors, they are ethnocentric. Uh, they're not world-centric. They are religious. Uh, and, and, and a religious sensibility is, you know, really different than a, a modern secular sensibility. It's sometimes hard to really, for those of us who are modern and postmodern and integral, hard to wrap our heads and hearts around this worldview where this world is not our home. We're actually here as children of God and our home is with God and we're here to do his will and fight against the devil. And it's a, a different kind of a really world space that people live in, a different logic, different antenna. They receive different uh, stimuli, make meaning different ways. And as we move into a modern world, these people, particularly as, as you know, democracy in one form or the other comes online, these people become, in, in a way, more and more powerful. And this gets me to uh, an, an, another example, of course, and this is China. And I did an interesting conversation with a Chinese expert, integralist, Alan Meese, who's lived in China. He's now back in the States for the last six months. But he's lived in China for 15 years, married to a Chinese woman. He's a pediatrician and was a pediatrician in Beijing and actually in a number of cities throughout China. And he gave me a lot of insight into how a country like China modernizes. And actually, when you consider that, you know, maybe 80 to 90 percent of Chinese people are pre-modern, Okay, we have the elites living in the coast, about 100 million of them, and about another 800 million in the interiors of China. 
that are very, very different. And it's interesting to see that as a country like China develops, that it's actually appropriate that the elites run things. Thank God, in a way, because the elites are world centric. Now, they can still have some. If you look at the chart, you'd see a red altitude, uh, which is sort of a just a dominator hierarchy. So these are people who um, you know are corrupt often and they're uh, not paying attention to individual rights and they're repressing the people. But they do have a modern sensibility that wants to integrate with the world economy while at the same time holding their people in a stasis that keeps things, you know, from spinning out of control. And again, there's a certain intelligence to this that we as integralists want to notice. Alan Meese was talking to me about the, you know, Chineseness, and and you know, every culture, it's like every human being is unique in time and space. And that's true of cultures as well. Cultures have karmas there. They arise in different times and different places. And, you know, God is good. This is the, the, the range of human and cultural behaviors are essentially infinite. And for Chinese, there's a just a, a basic preference for the collective, for order over individual rights. That's just always been a basic dimension of Chineseness. Um, they are a culture, Alan points out, of engineers, not lawyers. And this is, a, I think, an interesting quality that is part of the personality and the, the complexion of China. They don't have a great legal system, which is one of the things that we need as we move forth into a liberal democracy. Uh, but they do have a capacity for manufacturing, for uh, dealing with raw materials, logistics, engineering in general. This is part of just the Chineseness that is the, you know, the quality of this particular culture as it moves forward into modernity. And there are ways that it's moving into modernity that are the way every cult culture does. That is, as countries move into modernity, they become more scientific, they become more technological, they move into manufacturing, uh, they become less religious. In the case of China, uh, of course, religion was outlawed for many decades with Mao and the communist takeover uh, that happened in 1949. But today, uh, Chinese people are free to uh, practice their religion in private, but not free to, not so free to uh, practice their religion in public. And that's because Chinese people are afraid of this sort of affinity they have for the cult of personality, which was last seen in the cult of personality that formed around Mao and created such suffering and during the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, Alan also says that his guess is that 
China could be seen as a PTSD society, a post-traumatic stress syndrome society, uh, particularly in the people who are older, over 60. Uh, these are the people who lived through the Cultural Revolution. And that some of that sensibility actually uh, percolates down through even the children. And of course, he was a pediatrician and worked with children closely. It's a fascinating discussion I had with Alan. It, it will be posted here soon on the Daily Evolver website. So I encourage you, if you're interested in this, to check it out. But this, as we look at the world modernizing, the countries that are modernizing now are doing so in the context of a world where modernity has already come online in the West, particularly. And when the West was modernizing, the West was making it up as they went along. Of course, that had its, um, you know, tragedies and its indignities, slavery and genocide of the Native Americans and all that went with that. Uh, but there's a stability in the West of these institutions that are a um, essential part of liberal democracy that aren't online yet in these countries that are newly modernizing. So in a way, what we're realizing is that the development of the institutions of democracy will often lag the development of the economics of modernity. And I'm not so sure that that's not just the way it has to be. Because we don't want countries, particularly a country like China, to do a one-person, one-vote system because they're so ethnocentric uh, in their pre-modern mentality of the vast majority of Chinese. And this is true, to get back to what David Brooks was talking about, these are the two sort of models that are being held up to Africa right now. Uh, is, is it going to be a liberal democracy trajectory of development? Or is it going to be a state-controlled approach to development that is not democratic? I'm not sure which way it ought to go actually, in, a, in any given country. One of the things we have realized, it's so interesting how we learn as we just sort of watch the world unfold. And one of the things we've learned in the last, well, certainly 12 years in America is that this idea of going abroad and civilizing countries uh, bringing them into modernity, like Afghanistan or Iraq, uh, doesn't work. That it's not just about creating an economic system. It's not just about something as simplistic as integrating these countries into the world system. That there's a whole interior dimension of consciousness and culture that has to come along. And in some ways, it's better maybe for many of these countries to just develop first, that is, get your, you know, food situation, get some wealth, 
create a, a society that's integrated at least economically with the world so that you can, you know, have something to work with. And at that point, we would move uh, into a democracy. I think that democracy is ultimately inevitable. Uh, but there may be a stage of development. Clearly, there is a stage of development that countries have to go through uh, where they are um, getting the goodies, getting the exteriors of development uh, as they're working on the interiors. So again, any questions or comments that anybody has about any of this, I would welcome it. You can press one or you can also send a question or comment to brett at dailyevolver.com. And I do have actually a couple questions that have arrived. So I will address the first one. This is one that arose, uh, arrived uh, a couple weeks ago, and I've been meaning to get to it. Uh, it's from Marcus Buchowski, and he's talking about this quality of American character, that America always has to be number one. And this is from uh, the, the, uh, a column I did on the World Cup, where I quoted this writer, Alexandra Petri from the Washington Post, and she's a, a humor writer. So this is a humorous column that she wrote. But one of the things she said that I quoted was that, and I quote, Alexandra, she says, the World Cup is explicitly un-American since it has the word world in it and we have zero chance of winning. If I wanted to spend 90 minutes watching foreigners beating, us, beating up on us embarrassingly, I would just leaf very slowly through our students' international math and science test results. And so he writes and says, you know, what is it? I know she's joking. I know she means this ironically. But even so, he writes, the idea of being one of many nations in a large group of equals seems to not have any appeal at all for, American, for the American consciousness. Why is that? Even my integral slash postmodern friends who grew up in America seem to only conceptually agree with this kind of humility but it still seems to go entirely against their gut feeling. I'm not certain if there is any other nation where the need to be the best is so deeply ingrained in the national identity. It's so illogical in my mind. With over 100 nations competing, how could one expect to be always number one? Less than 1% any given tournament could be, and the chances to be number one in all areas are virtually nil. All right. So... Yeah, it's actually something that I think is changing pretty quickly in America. And um, one of the things that we're seeing in the Obama doctrine is that America is receding from being this number one militarily. We're still number one militarily. But to be the first in any situation leading the way is, you know, Americans don't want to do that anymore. One of the things we've realized is it's too expensive. It doesn't really get us anywhere. And there's a receding in the American psyche 
that is accepting that this is, again, something Fareed Zakaria talked about. And that is, it's not that America is necessarily uh, going backwards. It's just that the rest of the world is catching up. And that's a good thing. So in terms of math and science scores, math and science scores is something that countries take very seriously as they are in the modern stage or the orange altitude, the modern stage of development. And as countries move beyond that, they're less interested in that. It's certainly not the cutting edge. What's the cutting edge at post-modernity is emotional intelligence and social intelligence. And that's where American children are being educated these days. And, you know, there's a certain... Uh, alarm that we don't have the we're not number one in the science and math test scores. But in terms of these, you know, new areas of self-examination and interior uh, intelligence, emotional intelligence, social intelligence, this is where it's at for people at postmodern cultures. Another thing that I think explains why Americans have this sort of, have always had, even though I, I would argue that it's changing, have always had this idea of being number one. It, it, part of it is just the DNA of the country. America was founded and, and populated as the Europeans came over uh, by people who were, uh, let's say, Enneagram 8s or Enneagram 3s. These are people who were uh, adventurous. They were people who were willing to leave home and to go on a long voyage across the sea with the chance that they would never see their friends and family again. That's a certain, you know, psychographic that creates this personality that is America. So that's, we're, you know, still dealing with the DNA of that. And also there's just a, you know, every culture has a certain arrogance uh, I, I was reading Reddit. This is one of my, I'm going to talk about Reddit one of these days. It's a, a website, uh, one of the big websites. It's uh, in the category of YouTube and uh, Facebook. And it's what it is, is a series, kind of an endless series of these well-moderated communities. And People from all over the world, millions of people get on and ask questions of each other and have these discussions about things and learn from each other. It's really an amazing site that, um, I, you know, I think is really moving the ball in terms of mass global consciousness. But one of the questions that somebody rose on Reddit that got a lot of attention and got a lot of response was, what do you hate about your culture? And of course, this was said to everybody in the world. And so people wrote back from India and Japan and Europe and America and South America and Africa, all over the world. And the number one thing that people hated about their culture was their own cultural arrogance or the arrogance of their culture. Um, this sort of reflexive idea that we're the best. Uh, looking down on other people in terms of business and intermarrying and that sort of thing. Uh, that seems to be just part of the human condition at this stage of the game. So 
I think those are some reasons why America, first of all, has this sort of propensity to want to be number one, and also why we're receding in our assertion of that throughout the world. Okay, another question I get from Audrey in Boston is, what do I think about the ceasefire that is happening in Israel and Gaza at this point? Well, I don't know. I mean, what's going to happen? I, I, I saw a report from Richard Engel in MSNBC this morning where he said he thought it was significant. It felt different. It might actually hold at seven two hours. But, you know, what I would just notice about the war that's going on between Israel and the Palestinians in Gaza is that from a developmental point of view, it's a war between people who are center of gravity red, that is, or red amber. So they're holy warriors, they're um, religious, they're um, ethnocentric. It's amazing, and we're talking to Palestinians here, it's amazing that they actually think that they can win against Israel. Uh, but they do. And this is a feature of pre-modern thinking that, you know, the pre-modern world is a world not of logic, but of miracles. And so they have a deep belief, at least enough of them. And I, you know, I, from what I'm seeing, Hamas in, in Gaza is, well, it was first of all, democratically elected. And this is part of the problem with democracy too early. Uh, but they were, it was democratically elected. And now it's, you know, I think, from what I've seen, about 50% popular among Palestinians. Uh, of course, there are a lot of Palestinians who are modern. There are some Palestinians that are postmodern. They're over war. They, they want to integrate with the rest of the world. But the, still, the center of gravity is at the stage of development that thinks that God is going to you know, carry our banner and we are going to see the death of the enemy. And so that's on that side of the street. Uh, on the Israeli side of the street, we, we have people in Israel who think the same way. Not all of them. There's, there's a small number, but these are the, you know, the, the, the uh, ethnocentric, highly religious. The, these are the settlers. These are the people who are pushing against the uh, Palestinians who feel that this is a country that was given to them by God 2,000 years ago and so forth. But that's a minority in Israel. The majority in Israel is world-centric and, and um, is, is modern and, and postmodern. And so there, of course, they could easily beat Gaza if they wanted to use everything they got. They have a, a nuclear weapons, for heaven's sakes. But they are exhibiting something that is true of um, people modernity, and that is they care what the rest of the world thinks. Now, they still have to sort of defend themselves against the, the, the pre-modern Palestinians, uh, but they are, um, you know, moderating their behavior, uh, certainly not to the satisfaction of the rest of the world. Uh, and so they're sort of caught in this middle place. And the rest of the world is operating from a, or at least the Western world and the media of the Western world is operating from a modern and postmodern. So an orange-green 
altitude that is just horrified by the, you know, reality of war. And at every stage of the game, the, uh, you know, impulse from America and from the rest of the world is cease fire, stop fighting. Let's go in and, you know, do a humanitarian aid and, you know, let's work this out. Let's talk this out. And so there's really three big memes that are at play here. The warrior red amber, the amber orange of Israel, and the orange green of the rest of the world. All right. So that's, you know, some thoughts on that. And, you know, we'll see how it goes. Uh, but it is, you know, just heartbreaking. And that gets to this next question. And I think we'll have this be the last question for today. And this is from Wilhelm um, of, from Orlando. And he writes, last week's podcast about being with other people suffering. The external is a reflection of the internal. True responsibility is seeing and feeling how what's happening within me is creating what's happening out there. I think people need to start feeling their own pain and stop blaming the news. There you go. How do you handle the anxiety and sadness that watching the news creates? How do your listeners? Yeah, that's really true. And that's actually one of the things that we see from if we look at the West in terms of the response to what's happening in Israel and Palestine, and it's like, you know, stop fighting because it's making me anxious. And this is uh, a truth of, 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 of it's, it's really one of the things that as integralists we want to work with in terms of not only dealing with suffering over there and the other side of the world, but suffering uh, in other people, uh, our friends or our family, people who have a bad diagnosis, people who are dying, uh, people who have a great loss of fortune or a family member or something, is that a lot of times our impulse is to stop their suffering because it actually creates suffering for us. And that one of the things that we learn as we develop is to actually sit with the suffering of other people and not try to explain it away, not try to talk them out of it, not try to do anything except to actually be with them in this suffering. And that is, um, you know, that's a high order of service to do that. And it's one of the ways that we can actually be helpful in the face of suffering instead of, you know, I always think of one of the books that we read in my um, chaplain training. And I was, I was in the Masters of Divinity program at Naropa, which is a Buddhist university here in Boulder. And one of the books that we read, I always love, love the title, and that is How to Be a Help Instead of a Nuisance. And, and, and the idea of this is in chaplain training. Uh, how to actually be with somebody who is in some sort of extreme stress and not try to change that reality for them, but to actually be in that reality with them. And, um, you know, as I said, it's a high art. And, um, and it's something that, you know, I continue to work with and try to work my way into. All right. Well, I think that'll do it for tonight. 
thank you so much, as always, for tuning in and uh, join me as we continue to look at this ever unfolding catastrophe that is life that is moving towards greater levels of goodness, truth and beauty. But uh, as we say, evolution is beautiful, but it certainly isn't pretty. And so this is, you know, sort of what we have to deal with as we engage our lives in our world. All right. Thanks, folks. Take care and see you next time.